what is umami? Umami is the evolutionary signal to pre-chewed meat. Umami is actually pre-chewed, partially digested meat. Humans, back in the savannah, we had to chew our food and give it to our babies. They didn't have teeth. So if you wanted to give it meat, you had to evolutionary wire an infant to want this flavor. This is essentially meat that's being chewed with the amylases and the saliva digesting it. It's good to keep this in mind because umami and meat is technically slightly degraded meat. Welcome to Founder Friendly, where NYU's first student-led technology and venture capital podcast. Here, we provide an inside look into startups and VCs to help you break into the industry and learn more about the latest technologies and trends. Today, our guest is Poe Ronson. Poe is currently a managing director at IndieBio and a general partner at SOSV. Previously, he has had experience across multiple industries, including journalism, finance, and consulting. In our conversation today, we dive into the myths surrounding what makes food tasty, how necessary it is to be a technical founder in the food space, and what his thoughts are on impossible foods and beyond meat targeting fast food markets. Join us as we interview Poe about the things he's learned as an investor in alternative foods. So hi, welcome to our first episode on our food and beverage sprint. Our guest today is Poe Bronson. He's a general partner at SOSV and a managing director at IndieBio, one of the world's largest biotech accelerators. He's an acclaimed journalist going all the way back to the late 1990s during the internet boom. And he has published for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and has authored multiple best-selling books. So let's just dive right into it. And thank you, Poe, for coming on. Yeah, the famous author has a day job. As of VCD. My friends are like, what do you mean you have a job? And I'm like, I don't want to just write about people trying to solve our climate change problem at the same time as we have to solve our affairs with China problem, at the same time as we have to solve our COVID problem, at the same time as we have to solve inequality. I would actually like to do something about it rather than just write about it. Yeah. And just for our audience, can you just share a little bit of some of the most prominent examples for IndieBio's startup portfolio and what kind of sets them apart from others in the market? So I have been for five years now here at IndieBio. In food tech and agriculture is the most active investor. We were the world's first investor and then Memphis Meats, Upside Foods now, for launching the cell-based sector. We had been essentially the second investor in the space that where Impossible Foods was doing its soy heme. We were doing milk proteins with our company Perfect Day, and then quickly egg proteins with Clara Foods, now every company. So we are sort of the originators of a lot of the companies in food that completely changed the food space, where there was a lot of VC in food from 2008. Basically, Instagram invented foodies everywhere, and Instacart and then Uber Eats basically made us all be able to get this food. And there was a lot of food invention, but it was the kind of thing of like, I figured out a new way to do a dried chickpea. 
and make it into some sort of crisp Caesar salad flavor on it. And then we came along and we did Memphis Meats and the world was like, that's food tech. I thought we were doing food tech. That's food tech. You take it to a whole nother level. And we've been continuing to do that. At the core is that because we do biotech as well as food, you know, food science is not being invented by food scientists. Like in Memphis Meats, the guy's a cardio you know, heart surgeon and implanting stem cells to grow into cardiomyocytes and implanting cardiomyocytes was a science that came out of medicine. And since we do biotech, we do medicine, we understand the tissues and the science of what's going on in an animal body, if it's food or in a human body, if it's therapeutics at a level that's very different than food science. And it allows us to kind of continue to innovate here in the space. So just to be really clear on that differentiating factor, you know, if you're trying to recreate muscle tissue, the best science of muscle tissue does not live in uh, even a, a cell-based meat company. It does not live in a food science. It lives in the science of muscle wasting disease and types of muscles and how they use creatine and how they use oxygen and how they use fats and sugars and how they use fats and turn fats into sugars. And then you can run for 26 miles. You know, like the best science of fats is in cardiovascular health, where these fats have been clogging our arteries since the 1970s. No food company comes close to the lipid nanoparticle companies that are designing novel ionizable lipids to understand like, how things bind and work together. So because we do biotech, it just gives us another layer of depth into food tech. I would say the same about crop sciences, engineering crop sciences and how crops work and how soil microbes grow. There's biotech equivalents of all of that that we bring over. In terms of the companies that other ones I can mention, Finless Foods, Prolific Machines, companies like Endless West, which is on the cover of Wall Street Journal, the molecularized whiskey product called Glyph. Companies do turning waste into food, like Voyage Foods with its cold brew coffees, its chocolates, its peanut butter that are not made from peanuts. And that's taking food waste and turning this stuff. It's really cheap, really good. People forget, they're always focused on the center of the plate and the proteins, but like there's massive markets in chocolates and coffees and these other cash crops, avocados. So we have a company, Beeflow. Beeflow is the world's best pollination company. And they not only keep bees from having colony collapse, they boost their immune system, but they also pollinate better because of this boosted immune system. And the more often they pollinate, the more often they visit a flower, the bigger the berries that come out. So the blueberries and the almonds are coming out huge. It's an incredible company. Companies like Lipid that are redesigning how to do fats, company out of Cornell. We have 45 companies across food and ag, at least maybe 50 now, because we did five new ones between San Francisco and New York in the last $9 billion valuation in today's markets. Who knows what that's really worth? Oh, Notco. Notco is ours. We did Notco. That's amazing. Yeah, company after company. So given IndieBio's, you know, wide breadth of scope, investing not just in the end product, but also companies that are producing like components in these 
manufacturing supply chains. How does IndieBio approach investing? What are the qualities in terms of both, say, companies and founders that IndieBio look for when deciding, hey, we want to fund these startups. Hey, we want to like push them towards the market. Yeah, let's describe it as a fundamental tension that is true of IndieBio, but true of every VC. Because you mentioned like this concept of an ingredient play. So the world of VC does not want to do ingredients, has no interest. Traditionally, VC looks for category winners and category defining companies. That's what it wants to do. Asking it to do an ingredient is like asking water to roll uphill. It just, it's tough. But another way to say this is the money's in the burger, not in the blood. If you're thinking of Impossible Burger, when I say that, the fact that they can make this soy heme is you, you just can't sell it for a whole lot of money. You sell the burger. Essentially, enough money went into food and enough money couldn't just always say it's a category defining company. And people started to understand that the ingredients business actually has higher margins than CPGs do on average. CPGs run at about a 20% margin and they trade on their margin and their stock price is based in, almost entirely on their margin. And ingredient companies have a little bit higher margin than that, another five to 10% margin on that. And also that they're huge, that like the world eats so much food and they consume it like three to five times a day. It's amazing that these markets are actually big enough. And we saw investment dollars starting again. It's just like water going uphill, but like it went uphill for a while, started to go in 2019 a little bit. 2020 is when we sort of saw a breakthrough in that. And that is a real challenge. So the way everybody like does this, I think the best thing to talk about is what we call the perfect day model. Perfect day being one of the originators in this space. And perfect day at first, not necessarily saying we're going to make the milk or we're going to make the ice cream. It was we're going to make the proteins and we'll sell them and everybody will use them. Animal free whey proteins. And the thing is, the market was sort of like, yeah, we want to. What's the price? And can you get the price low enough that we could do it? And it's like, well, we're going to get the price low enough when we get to be gargantuan in size, but we're only large. We're large today, so we get the price to here. What you're asking for is to be gargantuan. And they're like, well, we don't want to pay that price. So you basically, at some point, you just have to say, screw it. We're going to launch our own brand. We're going to go after the burger, not the blood. Here, we make Brave Robot ice cream. Okay, number one fastest growing new ice cream in the United States, doing its cream cheese, and it's launching these new brands and partnering with smaller brands who are willing to pay that price. Next thing up, milk with Nestle. So all of a sudden, it is happening, the fulfillment of what they always said. So Perfect Day is a great company. It is both a launcher of brands and a B2B company. Essentially, it's both. It violates all rule of VC, which is do one thing and focus and do it super, super well. And essentially VCs is like, nope, you're B to C or you're B to B or you're D to C. You can't do them all. Focus, focus. Every VC says that still to this day, even at the earliest stage, you really can't do all that. It's like, 
well, perfect days doing it. Other people are doing it. Food companies do this all the time. So we are, again, in food as it's growing, it's fighting conventional VC thinking in these spaces. And every company just has to kind of figure it out. But I will say that the contrivedness of some visa funds are like, well, we're a B2B fund, so I can't invest in you if we don't do B2B. That's fine. That's saying that's what we do. That's what we like. That's not saying the only way to grow your company is X. And in food, I think that we're seeing a lot of this essentially replicas of the perfect day model where people have to make your own products. Here's where it gets complicated. It gets complicated when you think that the products of the future need more than one cool protein in them, one cool ingredient. What if you want to make the best product in the world and you need eight really cool ingredients? Like that one with eight tastes more like real meat. It'll be amazing. It'll be more sustainable. It'll outperform real products. Right now in the market, there's no real way to assemble from all of the best pieces in the world. This guy in Israel, he's got the best X. This woman in California has got the best Y. This person down in Mexico has got the best Z. This person in Taipei has got the best right now that's where they're all trying to beat each other each using their one weapon but in a video game you really want to be able to choose all the weapons you're going to see roll-ups you're going to see a lot of MA this year and probably what's really happening in the market is that people don't know how to price these food companies to the fact that Oatly's come down so much Beyond has come down so much Impossible's sales are great Notco sales are amazing. They're going up 300% this year. But like, there's still a lot of interest. People just don't know how to price the rounds. And that's creating funding pressure on the companies where normally the kind of thing you see out of this is companies die or they're acquired or they're rolled up in a way. And I think we'll see a lot of that. Yeah, there were a lot of great points there. I want to talk a little bit about what you were mentioning on how you guys are taking a non-traditional approach to VC. And specifically, I want to talk about how a lot of founders in this space come from research background and not necessarily say have startup or entrepreneurial experience beforehand. And I wanted to hear from you, like what that transition is like working with these founders and how their transition is into the startup world. Yeah. A lot of smart guys with entrepreneurial experience thought plant-based meats is a thing. No problem. I can raise money. I can sell ice to Eskimos. I'm going to buy some pea isolate, some methylcellulose laxative, some vegetable oil. I'll blend them, put them in a high moisture extruder, and I'm going to print money. That's literally what happened. And it was dumb. It's like saying I could compete with iPhone 3 because it's like, yeah, I rewired a BlackBerry to my MP3 player or something. This is deep tech area, and those people have been hit. That is being hit incredibly hard right now. A lot of the brands you would see on the shelf, they're about to disappear because the funding isn't there for just another sort of plant-based whatever. So we work with technical founders. That's our sweet spot. We work with people who have deep insights into 
one problem where they think they can solve it, one particular problem. It could be very, very technical. And we try to imagine what we can do with that. And then we try to train them. I think let me give you a really, I think a really good example. I had found these scientists at Cornell and they were like biomolecular engineers and one's a crazy food scientist. They were, they essentially could do a thing with physics. Just take the whole concept that oil and water don't mix. All right. The whole world knows oil and water don't mix, right? Or they don't mix for very long. False. Triglycerides, traditional, the things that stuffed inside of fat cells and saturated fats don't mix with water, but phospholipids do. So they attach to oil and they attach to water. That's a phospholipid structure. So it's a little bit of that, but basically it was physics that could basically make oil and water work together in a way no one had ever seen before. Where did they think they thought they could apply? They thought, you know what? We could make like a cream. And right now, if you want to put probiotics on your face or your arms for your eczema, whatever, you have to put it in water because those microbes like to live in water. You can't put it in a cream that's full of a fat. And we can make a water oil thing where the probiotics would actually be living in the water portions and you'd make a probiotic cream. The whole world of cosmetics wants a probiotic cream. And I was like, you guys are brilliant. I want to fund you. This was, this was like the day COVID started. And I was talking to Jen Yu up at Cornell. Here's the documents and here's the money, but I want to try to persuade you of some other markets. And they're very, very technical founders. I was like, I think y'all can make food with this. And the resulting product, Lipid, has won all of the food tech shows in the last year that's come out. Like just number one, gold prize, Lipid. We had to name the company too. It didn't have an identity as like a fats company. It had, had an identity as one of those kind of techie names that people think is some stupid software. And we were like, let's call it Lipid. My theory of naming a company is that your company should also work as the name of a cool bar that you want to hang out at. It's like if I was to walk four blocks south and I was to come across a corner bar, neon sign that said Lipid on it, prolific machines, I'd be like, I'm going in there. And uh, that's my theory. And that's the theory of how you wire company naming deeper into the brain of people. And yeah, Lipid figured out how to do this with fats and they also use proteins and they make the world's incredibly best hung shot rau, pork belly. They make bacon lardons. It's unbelievable product. And no one else can figure out how they do it because they're like, oh, this must be like cell-based fat. And I'm like, no, it's oil and water. It's literally cheaper than oil because the second ingredient is water and water is cheaper than oil. And they're like, that's not possible. And it's like, well, that's going to break. And I'm like, yeah. Put it in your refrigerator and call me in six months and see if oil and water don't mix because they sure do mix. So this was an original technological idea where their idea was we'll put it in cosmetics and we can always do cosmetics, but it was like, let's go after food. There's more value in food. And that's where our companies start. They don't actually start necessarily as food companies. You're not starting with it as a food company. You're thinking about how this, these technologies could impact food markets. Prolific Machines, which is the like, hottest new company in cell-based space. They're also doing pharma. Like, it is a core technology that we're applying to food. 
and can all buy a manufacturer. That's insane. And I think like earlier on, just following up this whole concept of like oil and water not mixing and oil and water actually mixing on misconception. What are some of the other misconceptions in the space from both an investor's perspective or just the general public's perspective that you can share, of course, without divulging any treatments? I'll share a little bit, but just to kind of give you a flavor of them, let's talk about flavor. Everybody listening, you're an expert. You got taste buds. You got flavor, right? Like you eat, you know, good or bad, right? Really basics. This is not a big deal, but like everyone thinks of flavor is detected on your tongue. Yes. Our mouth, the palate is a hundred times more sensitive than our fingertips. It is designed by evolution to immediately recognize friend or foe. That is what it's doing. And essentially friend is a valuable nutrient. And foe is, could be bad for me, take me down, right? And this starts before the food is in your mouth. You have intranasal aromas. So all food has these volatile compounds coming off it. Actually, everything does, like hardwood floors have formaldehyde coming off of it. If you have a really good nose, you could smell that stuff. But you also, deep in the back of the mouth, coming back up the other direction, are retronasal aromas. So there's a cadence of early aromas versus later aromas once you start chewing. The way that our mouths are wired, we have trigeminal nerve sensations. So those include temperature, uh, spice like capsaicins, pepper spice, metallic, astringent, bitter, and anesthetic thing. Most commonly, that would be alcohol. Alcohol is technically anesthetizing your trigeminal nerve right there and we like it or we recognize it each taste bud has 150 taste receptor cells in it and our gums our mouth lining our lips they're all incredibly sensitive in ways we don't think of them like you can stick your finger in there and just like don't think of it as that sensitive but it's really really sensitive and then umami just this basic thing of umami what is umami and it's one of, this is just an example of how we think, which is not like, what is it, like what particles are giving rise to umami, but it's really like umami is the evolutionary signal to pre-chewed meat. Umami is actually pre-chewed, partially digested meat. And why would we have that? If you ever watch a mother bird feed a worm to a baby bird and they chew it and they spit it in, Believe it or not, before Gerber invented baby food, humans back in the savannah, we had to chew our food and give it to our babies. didn't even have teeth. So if you wanted to give it meat, you had to evolutionary wire an infant to want this flavor. And this is essentially meat that's being chewed with the amylases and the saliva digesting it. This is the wiring. And it's good to keep this in mind because... Umami in meat is technically slightly degraded meat. Like chicken's best right after you killed it. Fish is best right after you killed it. Red meat? Nope. In fact, what are the genetics of Kobe beef or American Wagyu? American Wagyu is not a purebred thing. It's actually a half breed of Angus and Kobe, essentially. And it has the growth characteristics of an Angus with some of the flavor characteristics of a Kobe. But 
What are the genetics inside there? We can visibly see, like in Wagyu, those thin ribbons of fat and then those muscle tissues and stuff, right? That is associated with flavor. I'll explain it in a second. But like a cell is always like growing and then its proteins get old and you want to degrade them and make new proteins out of them. It's always turning around these proteins. Those enzymes are natural in meat. And once you kill an animal, they start to go to work on meat. And so in a traditional steak versus a Wagyu steak, they're going at different rates, doing slightly different things to slightly start to cut up and degrade the meat itself. Not in a negative way. We're not talking about microbes. This is not a foreign thing. This is actually what's going on inside the meat after you kill it. And that's making this meat into this succulent, soft stuff that we want to eat. Now, if we go back to the concept of Wagyu, if you picture in your head a Wagyu steak and it's got those ribbons of nearly invisible fat, you know, running between them. One of the big misnomers is that fat adds flavor to meat. And a lot of these companies are saying fat adds flavor to meat. And most of the fat in an animal is not running between the muscle tissues. It's actually on the outside. It's called cat fat. If you took that cat fat and you ground it up into ground meat, it does not taste better. If you laid it on a steak, it does not taste better. It's full of triglycerides and saturated fats, and they do nothing for flavor. Nothing. So all this is a lie. The best science explains that what fat does is it lubricates your teeth while you're chewing the muscle fibers. That's why a Wagyu works so well. It's got the little ribbons of fat right next to the muscle, and it lubricates the thing, and it's perceived by your mouth as moistness, as tenderness. And that fat has a different molecular composition than the fat outside of, of the steak, if you will, or the cut, which is cat fat. That intermuscular fat is, first of all, it's high in collagen. It's high in free amino acids that make things taste good. Yeah, and even have umami flavor. It's high in free fatty acids, which are essentially fatty acids that aren't inside a fat cell. And it essentially looks like fat, but it has less fat in it. But the most tasty fat in a steak, the tastiest of all the fats, the ones that give you that browning, that aroma that fills a room when you cook it, those are fats, but they're not fat cells. It's muscle cells. Every cell in a body is the cell membrane is made of fats. And it's a lipid bilayer. And those are what we call phospholipids. I mentioned before, the thing that makes oil and water bind together. Phospholipids taste good. Regular fats, fats that clog your heart, they don't taste good. And you want to get really, I'll go one layer deeper that will like freak you out. So the last thing we think about when we're eating is that we're eating DNA, right? You never thought about it. But on the other, if you think about it, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm eating things that are technically cells. There would be a nucleus. There would be DNA in there. And there's a lot of RNA flying around. But I never think about that when I'm eating it. Never. Turns out, RNA tastes really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially the raisin cheese. So let me, let me just walk it through for a second. 
Does meat have sugar in it? Like a steak, like a pure steak. It says zero on the package. DNA and RNA run on a sugar skeleton. And here's the thing. So yes, sugar as a fuel is inside the muscle cells. Okay. But those are six carbon sugars like glucose. Six carbon sugars, when they hit the pan, hit the frying pan, they're very stable. They're not very reactive. They don't give out a whole lot of smell. They don't even break down. But five carbon sugars, like pentose and ribose, those are really reactive. All those things you smell when you're putting a steak in a pan, those are partly a mix of the five carbon sugars mixing with certain amino acids. Where do we get those five carbon sugars from? They are the nucleobases in the nucleotides. And the more RNA in the cell, and it tastes really good. Those, we also have other food science words for them, like we call them purines. So they're what flavor beer and make us like beer. Like beer has this umami aspect to it. Those sugar and amino acid combinations are like rockets going off and explosions in the pan of these volatiles that give beefy, meaty flavor to foods. So it's funny. RNA tastes good. Yeah. Especially the A's and G's. So like, this is the level which we look at. I mean, we got to build a good company too, right? We got to build a category. We got to do all that. You got to do all that other stuff. But in the end, if you want to make something great, it's got to be wired great from the beginning. And in a technical company, all this stuff's got to be right. Yeah. So I guess on this idea of taste and on this topic, we all know taste is a huge selling factor for these alternative foods. Yeah. How close do you think that we have to be to acquire mainstream consumers and get them on board for alternative foods? Yeah, I think that different cuisines are just naturally better at absorbing new flavors and textures. And those tend to be very diverse cuisines. So there is no such thing as American cuisine, but it, America is a very good place to enter. China is a fantastic place because Chinese cuisines are so diverse. A good example is that like a lot of peanuts are now getting grown in China. And there's a tradition of using peanuts in some dishes, but not peanut butter. But now peanut butter is being integrated into lots of dishes in different regions of China because it's just a very expansive cuisine that's flexible. In other ones, sort of, it's just more rooted in tradition, doesn't accept new things. So there's an aspect there. So what am I talking about really here? I'm like secretly saying, in my opinion, not the right move to launch an alternative plant-based burger in a place like Burger King. Why? Because when you are driving the highway and you pull over to a Burger King or a McDonald's or something, are you looking for something new and weird? No, you're looking for something that has the Whopper. Like I ate the Whopper in California. I'm driving across New Jersey. I want the Whopper. I want to know what I'm getting. That's the whole point. Otherwise, I go to this other little shop that I've never heard of. It's predictability that you want when you go to fast food chains. You want those fries that you know the crispness. Not everything's the same, but you know what you're going to get and get it. And that gives you comfort. And that's not the place in my mind to be launching something that does not taste like meat or feel like meat. And you end up in what's called the uncanny valley. 
And in the Uncanny Valley, you're in trouble because you're sort of trying to be a replica, but you're not the same, and it just kind of looks weird, right? So in terms of proximity to realness, it is important not to be in that Uncanny Valley. You can popularize new foods that you're really actually making clear. Almond milk is not trying to be exactly like milk. It's being almond milk. Oat milk works great for people who want their milk to taste like a bowl of oatmeal. Like, that's great. And you know what it is and you expect it. But if you expect it to taste like milk, you're like, whoa, I would have ordered a bowl of oatmeal if I wanted oatmeal in my coffee. But I'm not expecting that flavor. This is like what you have to really think about. I will say, though, that as you get into these like very close proximity, the let's say alternative meats are two and a half percent of the market. That's because we've done two and a half percent of the work. We've got stuff coming. They're incredible products. Like the next wave of product is unbelievably good. And I think far closer. The burger format, I don't think is the answer, just to be clear. Yeah, like I've never been more excited about cell-based meat space. Upside Foods actually has its FDA green light and working with the USDA right now. And we have ways to bring costs down in this sector dramatically. It's going to be far more realistic and safer and more predictable. If you want predictability, it's going to be more exciting. So, but there's so many other ways we can do. That. Yeah. Speaking of costs, actually. So I guess, cause you mentioned there's only maybe about 2.5% of the work being done. There's so much more innovation and other like technological advancements in the space. Do you eventually see these alternative foods, cellular based meats becoming cheaper than regular offerings that we have today? Is that maybe like a 10-year, 15-year horizon? I think it's better to think about it through the lens of the rising global middle class, the number of people who will be living closer to a Western standard of living, and essentially in the food markets, how much they eat. But we're not just talking about eating. We're like how many houses they need, how many cars they need, how many bicycles they need, how many schools they need, how many roads they need, bridges, everything. When you're going from 32 billion people living essentially in a middle class and above level in a world to 5.6. It's not like you need 20% more of stuff. You need 400% more of stuff. There's tremendous price pressure and there's demand pressure and there's capacity challenges. It's useful to think of them as add-ons for taking this additional market that's growing rather than just displacing. And because I think that's a little more realistic I don't know that we're actually going to stop doing it the old way is the point. We may, or we may eventually get there, but that goes to this question of cost parity, right? If you're looking to absolutely eliminate, say, animal agriculture, that's one thing. If you're trying to say, I'm taking the extra capacity, that's another thing. And you can get to, like, that we actually wipe out, say, animal agriculture in 30 or 40 years just because we're cheaper not moral or anything just cheaper like that helps us understand why this can work that it doesn't have to reach that price parity in 10 years to do it now do we have technologies coming that we're financing now that we hope can like say zero out the costs and sell base meat yes do my companies show predictions of costs that are lower than the cost of meat yes they got to go prove it but I'm saying like, yeah, 
it takes in some cases it's a dimension of scale and in other cases it's a invention of method but they don't have to be like cheaper to survive mm, right i think going back to how we were talking about how impossible and beyond targeted fast food for you since cell-based meat has not really gone to market yet are you looking to learn from those errors and is there a different target market that you're looking at more specifically as cell-based meat starts to become a little bit more accessible to the public yeah i mean perfect days ice cream doesn't tell some complicated story about what it's not, or it's not this, or we didn't kill any cows, or we didn't milk a cow. Lipid, we decided to go to market at a cafe chain in Taipei that has 500 cafes around Taiwan. And that product is, it's a breakfast patty. And it just sort of says, here's this like egg McMuffin-y type thing with a future meat in it, but it's not going around talking too much about it. It's not even like we're making them pay attention to it. We're trying to get them to like do it without paying attention to it. The labeling is there. We're just not making a big deal out of it and looking for opportunities like that. So I actually broadly like fast casual. See, there's things in food you do need to learn. Like in a burger, a regular burger place is a thing called a drop test. You take your burger and you're a worker and you got to do, do like whatever, 5,000 burgers a day. And you drop it on the grill. When you get to a Beyond Meat, if you drop it, it's going to splash. It's going to break. So, like, there are things in food that are like this. In Starbucks, every Starbucks, there's this massive competition to be the milk there, right? Starbucks famously sells more milk than anybody. And they want to be more environmental. And they want to solve this. Well, how can you make something that foams faster than real milk? Because you're saving labor and time. Like, so from an investment point of view, can you make it so that it doesn't take minutes? They do it really fast at Starbucks. It's crazy how fast they do it. But, like, can you make it faster? So, like, these are the functional sides. I like being exposed to that. I know these things matter, and I want those. Well, how does it perform? How does it save labor? How does it save electricity? Does it save time? Like, these things matter in food. And I want exposure to that, but high-end enough food that, it, people are there because they're looking for a bit of that novelty aspect and not just looking for predictability. Thank you so much, Paul. I think we are going to wrap it up. If there's any, like one sentence, two sentences, just a few words, what are some final thoughts that you have for our listeners? I think that the one thing that, you know, you understand this, but like, lots and lots of money is going into reinventing food and it is at a crisis point this year and valuations are soft all of a sudden and things aren't going up. The alternative milks is going great. I think it is a super exciting space and I would say to anybody listening, I was a bozo. I grew up in restaurants and food. I was an economist. I never thought of working in food. I didn't think that was a career for me. And now years later, I came back to food and as a futurist and now as an investor, and I wish I'd never left. Food is a great industry to go disrupt and be part of. It's so fun. It is the best industry for this key reason is that 
food is not something where like people buy it once a year or once like a phone or once every 10 years like a car. We're talking about something that people are buying every day. So if you want to influence society, you want to make a change in society, you want to change how people think and, and what they do, and you want to change carbon footprint, go after something that's as regular as this. It's the world's biggest market. It's an $8 trillion market. Like, it's unbelievable, and it's worth your time.